This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 99. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. I am proud to tell you that this is episode 99 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. 99 episodes. Unbelievable. So it was on September 15th of 2014 that I uploaded the first episode, and that was very short. It was 13 minutes. It was just me kind of rambling, telling you what was coming up. And then from then on out, it was a guest every show. We used to do two episodes a month. And then I was uh, strongly advised to do one a week. I chose to take that advice and go ahead and go with it. And you all seemed to jump on board and the numbers grew exponentially. Pretty amazing. So much so that as I'm looking at the numbers for October, Last month, there were 20,696 downloads in the month of October of 2016, if you're listening to this at any other time. And I've mentioned it before, it never occurred to me that any of you would really enjoy listening to some of the non-gear-related stories, because so much of what we are, you know, accustomed to with all of the, you know, regular institutions that we, you know, enjoy very much and respect, you know, I mean, you know, tape op and Mix Magazine and some of the other shows, uh, some of the other podcasts, YouTube channels talk about gear. Tape Op, I think, is probably the closest one that comes to uh, what we do here because they, you know, talk about things in and around the business. But I don't think anybody, and I could be wrong, I, I don't listen to, read, and digest every bit of audio stuff that's out there, but... I think tape op comes the closest to us. Beyond that, I, I don't know of any other professional audio-related information out there talks about what we talk about. So I'm glad you enjoy it. It seems like more and more people are continuing to enjoy it. Appreciate it. I thank you for continuing to tune in. In today's show, I have on the very talented and well-known Rob Schnaff. And if you don't know Rob... I say he's well-known. He's known to me, but and he's known to a lot of others. Rob, if you remember, if you go back many years ago, many, many years ago, sorry, Rob, Rob and a group of guys were doing a record label called Bong Load Custom Records. It was in the early 90s, and they were notable for releasing Beck's Loser single because Rob had you know, heard Beck playing on the street uh, at the annual Sunset Junction Fair which takes place in uh, Los Angeles. And so anyhow, so Rob Rob and his gang were responsible for Loser and, well, of course, and Beck as well. Anyways, so he, he went on to continue working on, on many other things, of course. He's not, that's not the only thing he did. But that is the one thing that did, did put him on the map. And I think Rob would agree with that. I think, in fact, he says that in the interview. He went on to work with a, with a bunch of different people and just kind of swinging forward here, uh, he's done some work with um, Booker T, Tokyo Police Club, Dr. Dog, Joyce Manor. He also did this record with this guy, uh, Cass McCombs, uh, records called uh, Mangy Love. And I got to say, I am totally into this record. Super cool. Really great production. Great writing. I highly recommend it. It's really, really great. So uh, make sure and check that out amongst the many other records that he's done. So anyways, yeah. 
Rob Schnaff coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Super excited to have him on. So, bit of a sad note. I have to say, I'm very sorry to report if you didn't see my Facebook post. Uh, we here in the Bay Area have lost an incredible talent. I'm talking about Tom Size, who, unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of knowing. Tom and I only exchanged emails at one point because we were discussing having him on the show and scheduling was a little bit of a challenge. And then of course he was diagnosed with cancer. So we never, we never were able to uh, schedule that interview. And uh, sadly he died recently. And we here in the Bay area are just incredibly saddened by this. Uh, Tom had worked on, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm just, I'm staring here at his discography. It's pretty, pretty deep. I mean, we're talking about Aerosmith, Lori Anderson, Booker T and the MGs, Tommy Castro, Alex DeGrassi, uh, Enchant, Pete Escovito, Paul Gilbert, Journey, Huey Lewis and the News, Mr. Big, Night Ranger, Ray Abito, Psychograss, uh, Racer X, Todd Rundgren, Joe Satriani, The Tubes, Y and T. Yeah, he just, he has worked on a ton of stuff and well-respected guy. And from everything I've been told, just one of the nicest guys and one of the more talented guys out there in terms of uh, the world of audio. So um, just want to say rest in peace to Tom and, um, and let you know of, uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to head on over to uh, his website, uh, which is tomland.com. Have a look at his discography, maybe sit down, go through some of the records that he worked on and, uh, you know, just reflect. I often say it, life is very short. And one of my bits of advice to, you know, people up and coming is to, you know what, just get into the world of, of audio and do what it is you want to do. Get to work and enjoy it and enjoy yourself in the process. So um, yeah, Tom size. Cheers to you, Tom. Rest in peace. Just back again to uh, talking about the podcast and, and where we're at. So podcast number 99, here's where we're at. And this next one coming up, um, you know, this, as you listen to this, this is probably, this has come out on a Monday and maybe you're listening to it on a Monday. I don't know. Maybe you're not. Anyways, uh, the next Monday, you're going to be expecting number 100 and it's not going to be there because I'm actually going to release it on uh, later because we're going to stream number 100 live from uh, 25th Street Studios. It's going to be an interview with Stephen Hart and Cookie Marenko in front of a live audience and stay tuned on the podcast, uh, on the on, stay tuned on the website and on the Facebook page. I will do my best to relay the message of where we're going to stream from, whether it's YouTube or Facebook. I'm not really sure yet. We have got to make a decision about that, but you'll know, and it'll be fun uh, to tune in. If you are interested in winning any prizes, because I've got the sponsors to kick down some prizes, and we're going to give some away locally in the Bay Area, and then we're going to give away some uh, over the internet to our listeners who aren't in the Bay Area. So the way to do that, if you're whether you're in the Bay Area or not, uh, you need to get on that email list and. I've said it before, I don't abuse the email list. I just don't because I get too much stuff from everybody else and I don't want to be that guy that bombards you with constant, constant stuff. That's just not, it wouldn't work for me. So, um, but I want it to be useful for you. So sign up on the email list and then when I go to choose names of, you know, who's going to win prizes, 
I go to the email list and I, you know, kind of do a random, put the finger down and go, this person, and then that person wins. How about that? It's pretty easy. So there you go. Sign up for that. Um, what else? God, I think it's time to get into the interview. So let's do it. And uh, I'll raise a coffee cup to you and say cheers to number 99. And here's to number 100 coming up. So take a sip of coffee. Mm. That coffee's a little cold. <laughs> but anyways, let's get into it. Rob Schnaff here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for taking the time to do this. Everybody and their dog was telling me I need to have you on the show. Really? Yeah. We'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how to correctly say your very confusing looking last name. Schnaff, like like it looks. And this is coming from somebody with the last name of Boudreaux saying that, how does your name work? <laughs> the audacity yeah. I have. You um, have a lot of vowels. I have one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not used to so many consonants in the, in there. So anyhow, um, I had to do a little research on you. And what I love about doing that is going back and listening to stuff that you've worked on. Really was enjoying the Cass McCombs record a lot. Oh, cool. It was a really cool record. A um, couple other records that I was listening to was the Booker T record that you did. That's really super cool. Uh, the one with the Roots? Uh, the one with the drive-by truckers. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. The, is that po Potato Hole? Is that yeah. Yeah, that's... I did two. Okay. So there, that was the first one that I did with them. And then the one after that, the Roots are the the backing band. That one's really cool, too. Tokyo Police Club was listening to that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to just jump in here with a, a question that uh, immediately came up as I was listening to the Booker T record, which is an instrumental record. As best I, I, I didn't listen all the way through. I listened to the first song and then I was jumping around to bits yeah. and pieces of it. Mixing a record like that or doing a record like that with no vocals with that kind of, I don't know, it's, it was categorized under R&B on Google, which was surprising. It's so, it's so not an R&B record to, no. my, to my ear. It's just because they assumed because it was Booker T. Pigeonhole. Right. Um, that's a, a much different process mixing an instrumental record of that type with, you know, rock guitars and. and not really. I mean, because the main melody, I mean, he's playing melodies the whole time. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the vocal. I could see that. So that sort of becomes the focus, and then, and so yeah, the melodies become the vocals, and then um, and then it's a rock band around that. I mean, that's kind of how I thought about it. And how did you come to work with him? My good friend Andy at Anti. We've we had played in bands together back in the early '80s in DC, and. Um, he runs Anti, and we've just shared this love for music. He asked me. Hmm. I was like, fuck yeah. And it was an awesome experience. Booker's really generous and creative, always has ideas. And he's just great player. God, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's really interesting to be around guys like that because uh, it's effortless and easy. Because they know what the hell they're doing and, or they have a vision? Yeah, they know what they're doing, and they've been doing it for so long. That, you know, it's that muscle memory thing. Mm -hmm. They know how to get inside a melody really easy. And then he had his friend, as he said to me, I'm going to get my friend Neil to play on this. <laughs> I was like, Neil who? <laughs> Who's this Neil guy? Yeah. It was like Neil or Eric. And then he got Neil. And then, you know, yeah, I was kind of nervous. I'm like, Neil who? Neil Young. Uh-oh. 
Uh-oh. Do you get nervous around people of that? I mean, Booker, Booker T is easily one of the, the people of that caliber and of that legendary status. Does that freak you out a little bit? You know, yeah, there's a period. And then, you know what? It's Then you get to work. And then, you know, everybody's doing their job. And then you just get past it. You get over it. And, you know, you could tell, too, like, you see them looking at you and they're listening to your words. And then you know, like, oh, yeah, okay, we're doing this. So you're working. And was that your idea to bring in the drive-by truckers as the backing band on that record I'm talking about? No, that was Andy's because he had done a record with um, Betty Lavette, who's a, she's a, sort of an unheralded uh, R&B singer. She was always sort of on the outside, but great, great singer from Detroit. Yeah, it was really cool. That came out really good. So Andy wanted to try it again. And so we went to Athens and cut it in four days. And then I, I edited it up, edited it, edited it. That's hard to say. See, this is the, you haven't had enough coffee yet. <laughs> oh my God. I then cut it up. Not like, um, you know, just arrangement wise, because everything was really long form. Okay. And then Neil came in and played on it. We went to San Francisco and spent a day with him there. Where were you when you were in San Francisco? Um, High, High Street. Oh boy. Great neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really, really special. I was staying at that funky hotel around the corner. Where uh, they pipe in the sound of birds over speakers. Yeah, I think it was that. It was an old like motor hotel, motel. Uh, is it the the Phoenix? I don't remember. Okay. But I would walk past this homeless guy to the studio and it would always, we'd have this exchange. Nice beard, brother. Yeah, you too. Every day? Every day. Yeah. yeah. Consistency. Mm -hmm. And again, working with Neil was the same kind of thing where I don't know what I was expecting, but he's really a great musician. He would just hear the songs and go, okay, all right, yeah, D, F sharp in the bass, all right, cool. You're, uh, all right, you're hitting the four chord there. All right, just calling it out, listening. No good, no instrument in hand. Heard all the changes. I was like, all right, let's do it. I didn't know hmm. he was like that, but of course he is. I think that if I were in the same situation, I think my problem would be that I would, I would have to be, I would have to purposely dismiss everything you've ever heard about any particular artist, you know, and in particular with Neil, I guess it's, you know, he's very, very against, you know, very pro analog tape. Um, so if I was cutting to pro tools, I'd feel like, Oh, is Neil going to be okay with this? But I guess, I guess realistically, when you sit down and you're working with him and you're working on Booker's record, you just, you do your thing. Yeah. He does his thing. You do your thing. Yeah. It was, it was no big deal. David Barbie was just on the, on the show a few episodes oh, cool. ago. Did you record the drive-by truckers at Chase Park Transduction? Yeah. That was awesome. He's a gentleman. He's a really cool guy. Oh, he's a great guy, but he's got no wiffle ball game. <laughs> David. <laughs> Get your wiffle ball on, buddy. We talked a lot of wiffle ball, then we started playing it. It was like, come on, man, that's it. Let's talk about what's going on right now before we go into the past at all. Right now you're at this studio, is it called Mant? Mant, yeah. Yeah, and this is in Los Angeles. Yes, in uh, Glassell Park, and it's um, like in the uh, King Size studio complex. So King Size is a studio next door to me. They have a series of buildings with studios in them. Yeah, so I have like a my little humble spot here. And do you bring most of the records that you do there, if possible? Well, it's not if possible. It's 
based on budget. Mm. So based on the budget, I still like to craft records. There's just not a lot of money. If I go to Sunset Sound, we're spending most of the, the money on two weeks of time there or whatever. You know, it's just that the scale is way different. I'd rather spend it working on the record mm-hmm. on time. And so so this is like uh, my tool. I, I have, I'm in control that way of how, you know, I have control, more control over the budget that way. You can basically take an all-in budget and do it there at your place. Yeah. Now, what about pre-production? Does that take place outside of the studio for you? Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple of different ways to do it. It depends if it's an artist or a band. And a lot of it, you know, starts with demos, obviously. And then if it's an artist, we can just get together and blast through songs. Mm -hmm. What's your primary instrument? Uh, Guitar. Okay. So if it's a band, tell me about that pre-production process. I like to go to a place or, you know, a rehearsal studio. I'll already have charted out all the songs. And then, you know, we just sit there together and play them and I'll raise my hand. Hey, this, that, and, you know, tighten things up, change them around, sometimes add chord or add some passing chords or do nothing, you know, just depending. Nothing gratuitous. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to get my hands all over stuff. Just, you know, you just kind of poke away at the songs and try to... What would be the word? Maximize their potential. (laughs) (laughs) Shine a light on things that might not be uh, coming out so much. Yeah, you know, you send out the probe a little bit. It's like, oh, if we could just get, I mean, I'm going to make some really lame, um, uh, uh, well, if we could just get, there's just those little chordal things that sometimes, you know, getting from the verse to the chorus, it makes the chorus hit harder and so instead of it just going verse chorus sometimes you could just do you know two passing chords or you they're just those little chordal things that will then lead the melody into the the chorus that can make it feel really good mm-hmm. and sometimes they work and other times you know it's like yeah nah it's good just hitting so it's it's sort of fleshing all that stuff out before we're going to the go into the studio. Do you ever get, I'm sure you do, but I'm curious how you deal with it. Do you ever get the the pushback from any member of the band where maybe they're feeling insecure and they say, well, you know, I've been playing it like this for two years. I'm not, I don't know if I want to change it. Yep. And how do you address that without causing a confrontation? It's not confrontational. It's not, it's like, just try it. Listen to it. Let's just see what it sounds like. I'm just giving you my perspective from where I am. It's your song. We're working together and I'm working with you. I'm on, I'm just telling you my opinion. You have final say. Mm-hmm. You're not into it. You're not feeling it. Good. I, I always feel at a disadvantage from a production standpoint, being a drummer, I always feel like my, you know, my music theory is not anything to speak of. So speaking in guitar language is always challenging to me. I'm wondering if you always, do you have a, um, do you ever feel at a disadvantage with drummers or when trying to make suggestions in terms of trying to articulate what your vision is or your ideas? I mean, yes and no. I like I don't really care about coming off stupid or not. Okay. I'm just trying to get the point across, you know? So I'll just I'll make drum suggestions, you know, with my mouth. Just go, you know, the black and black and black and get out of black. <laughs> See, I know what you're talking about when you say that. <laughs> So that's fine. I like, I don't, I don't care, whatever. 
Whatever it takes. I'll have to figure out what that is in guitar language next time I'm trying to communicate something. <laughs> well, the other funny thing about guitar is like, there's plenty of people who they're all ear and they don't have any theory. So you still have to do it in some kind of, uh, same kind of blackum blackum guitar equivalent. Yeah. Musical caveman speak. Yeah. But I don't want to say caveman because that's judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it, you know, it, it's cool if you'd never learned, but you got an ear and you've developed that thing and that's awesome. So, you know, I'm totally happy to go first finger on the fourth fret, second finger on the fifth fret. Yeah. yeah. For producing in your style of production, what influenced that? When you go to do a pre-pro session now and you make a record with a band or an artist, what informed your your style? Like, was it something early on that, uh, your experience say with a producer or was it your experience making records early on with say, uh, your buddy, Tom, uh, Rothrock or. I think it's just all experience really. Hmm. Like, you know, you start off listening to records and there's a certain mystery to them, how they're made. I mean, especially back then before YouTube and, you know, just trying to learn songs on vinyl was like a, you know, like the Beatles were a mystery back then to me. There was so much like, whoa. And it was mono and you couldn't always hear all the parts. And, you know, it was just, yeah, it was much more myster mysterious. But um, yeah, I think it's just, yeah, you just learn stuff along the way. You learn stuff from great musicians and and bands and you learn stuff from, succeeding and you learn stuff from failing yeah all of it yeah i mean not not to not avoiding the answer but I, I can't say it's like anytime you learn something then you then have to apply it and make it work or you know you have to adapt it for yourself and nothing works twice in a row anyway <laughs> yeah that's for sure that's one of the lessons i've learned the hard way <laughs> it's like ah yeah i'll do this next time and then you do it and you're putting the donkey head on. So it was like, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> Obviously, we live in the age where a lot of musicians are very DAW-centric. And sometimes they're, sometimes they're ex newer bands, their expectations are, you know, oh, well, can't we just, can't you just edit it? Or, well, I guess I can play it. And some of the things, the the habits and, and the, what I consider the, the, the bad habits, in my opinion, of musicians and their approach to making a record, sometimes it's, they want to just keep endlessly doing all the things that you you can do in Pro Tools. Like, well, just give me another playlist. Just give me another playlist. And it's like, do you ever put your foot down and just say, you know, I I don't have the time to edit 60 guitar solos together, so let's be a little more decisive. Um, I think that um, being involved and not you're not just letting somebody go the whole time. It's like, Either they have something to say or they have nothing to say. If they have nothing to say, then the goal is to try to get them to say something. And once you get on that path, then it's pretty directed what you're trying to do. And you end up in a place and it doesn't turn into, you know, I don't know, yeah, 80 takes of babbling. Mm -hmm. and then you're trying to cobble something together. It, it's sort of like, what do you want to say? 
First, let's figure out what you want to say. All right, now let's say it. Trying to prevent them from going down that rabbit hole. You just try to guide them to coming up with it, what it is that they're trying to accomplish instead of just letting them noodle on and on and on and on. Yeah, and I'm happy. And also, if we're, if it's constructive and like I kind of understand what we're doing and going for, it's cool if it takes a lot of takes and playlists. And I, I'm kind of keeping a, a, a tally in my head. Like, okay, this, okay, this is development. All right. And we got that beginning part and we got to get this middle section. All right. So you're still playing from the beginning and we're going into this middle section. Okay. All right. Now, oh, look at that. We got all the way up to here now. And this is number 20. But okay, around 20, we have all the way through the middle. You know, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I still won't be cobbling, but we're, we're, it's uh, developing and it's because in the end, it still has to communicate. You know, it's still got to make it out of the guitar speaker, into the mic, through the glass, out of the speakers, and mean something. If you just play it perfect and it's meaningless, has no feeling, who cares? What are the strengths that you bring to the table for a band or an artist and as compared to your peers? Like, what's, what's your style of working? Good question. <laughs> um, well, I'm adaptive. I feel like um, I'm the objective voice for the song. So I don't care about the drama or the politics. Uh, It's either working for the song or it's not working for the song. And so that, that, that's what I care about. Guardian of the song. Yeah. It's like the, you know, I have the blue helmet on like the UN, except for more (laughs) useful than the UN. (laughs) So do you ever feel like the band in spite of writing a great song that has great potential that you think you can help achieve something with, do you ever feel like the band is sabotaging the song? Do you ever feel like you have to save it from the band? I feel like if we're all on the same page and we're all in this together, it's not usually an issue. Okay. Because because I'm not saying shit all the time just to say shit. I'm saying something when I have an opinion. And there's plenty of room. So it's not like I'm stepping on people's neck every moment of the time, strangling the life out of stuff. And it really is about working on this together. I'm here to help. So I don't really feel like that happens so much now. I mean, maybe it's because we talk about stuff. So even maybe before the pre-production happens, I mean, uh, I'm sure that there's many conversations that happen before then. Yeah, and, it, you know, if you stay engaged all the way through the process, like, it helps, it also helps me. Like, okay, right, yeah, all right, we're kind of doing this thing. You don't want to do that thing. We're kind of doing this. All right, so this is what we're making. So we're, it, it, you know, it's a two-way street, really. Mm-hmm. I have to be just as much engaged with them as they are with me. And keeping that flexible nature that you spoke of, I'm sure helps. Yeah. It's not a singular vision. It's not like just my vision. It's ours. So when you sit down with a band for the first time, I mean, what are some of the questions you ask them about what they're doing? I just talk about the songs because that's going to direct the whole thing. Like the song and the shape. Mm -hmm. And I think everything sort of comes out of that, really. 
I want to transition a bit to some of the more businessy aspect of what what it is you do, what it is we do. Um, <laughs> you're yet another guest who is managed by Frank McDonough. Oh, uh-huh. it just seems like he's like the predominant manager. Um, let's see, Joe Barisi, Andrew Sheps. Yep. Uh, yep. In the in the past, Sylvia Massey, um, uh, I think Matt Wallace, yeah, a lot of pe- lot of, lot of people. So at some point, I need all of you to lobby on my behalf to get Frank to come on the show. But I'd love to oh. ask him a few questions. But I'm curious. You know, it seems this is my perception. To correct me if I'm wrong, you audio folks are going along doing their career, and then they have you know the one record or the couple records that bring them out of the shadows and bring out the managers. Is that what happened to you? Is that how Frank came into your world? Or was there um, another manager before Frank? Oh yeah, I've had several. And uh, I, I just started with Frank in the last year. I mean, it used to be like in the 90s, you really wanted one. And now you don't as much need one if you if you kind of have a thing going already. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a thing going and you're struggling, no matter no manager wants you because it's fucking tough out there. <laughs> and everybody's trying to make money. But I think the whole point of it is um, you have your circle, they have their circle, and you're just trying to make the circles bigger and, you know, wider. And that's kind of what it is. I see. And you, you want to be involved with people who do business in a way that, um, you know, is sort of, of is, you're com- is comfortable to your aesthetic. Do you ever feel that involvement with a manager while expanding those circles, does it limit your access to some of the other bands that you may not otherwise get to? Because maybe there's a, an up-and-coming indie band that sees, oh, he's got a manager. Well, he's probably really expensive. We shouldn't work with him. I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm curious, like, what is, what is Frank's involvement with you? How does that, that relationship work? I have stuff that I, uh, you know, it's like whatever. I have some very old relationships. I have my circles. Frank will help me deal with the business end of stuff. Or... He'll be also sending out his net, casting his net. Mm-hmm. He's got people coming to him too. And, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, uh, Andrew Sheps, Joe Barisi, oh, they're not, they're not available. What about Rob Schaff? You know, you get that kind of walk-in business. So the percentage of what you bring in on as far as bands to work with versus what Frank brings in, is that is it equal or is it... Uh, Primarily you bringing in the bands and Frank facilitating the business end of it? Well, I would say right now, the way it's been working, it's been mostly just me doing my thing. Uh, but it's the early in our relationship. What's your, your past involvement with other managers? What has worked and what hasn't worked? Well, the weird thing is every year you go back, you know, starting at like 2010, if you go back every year to 2010, the business has gotten worse and changed every year. So it's sort of weird to go backwards in a way because the landscape shifted like a lot every year. 
But before that, I could say that most of the time, my managers got me work. And when I wasn't working, I would go, hey, I need some work. What are you guys doing over there? Yeah. And now it's not that way. And I think that's awesome. I, it's like, uh, it just gets you involved. Hmm. You're not, and, and that's good on a whole bunch of levels. And it exactly like, you know, the downturn in the business has been also like this creative, uh, man, it's so cool creatively because you're just working with the artist directly. You're, you're not making um, stupid concessions for a record company. Hmm. I'm not saying all record, con- all major labels make you make stupid concessions, but depending on who you were working with, sometimes the shit was just like, why did you sign this band? <laughs> yeah. This isn't what they do. You want them to, have you listened to the band? <laughs> <laughs> it just makes it direct and pure. And it's about, I, I just, I, I love that part. So while I make a fraction of the money, I, it's, you know, about the art. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole motivation for this. That's what this is all about. And and it's fine if you want to make pop music, that that's completely different, but I'm just saying. So one of the byproducts or that were, I guess the silver lining of these changes is, is that it's you, your manager and the bands and their manager kind of getting together with not as much involvement from the record companies. Interrupting. A lot of times you are delivering finished product. That's it. That's the, that's the involvement of the label. Are you waiting long periods of time to get paid from these labels in this day and age? Fucking sucks. <laughs> 30, 60, 90 days? I, it's, it's infuriating uh, sometimes. It really depends. Some people like Matador and Anti are awesome, tight, fast, great. And then there's other stuff where you're just pulling teeth and, and it's, yeah, it's a drag because you're not doing stuff for a lot of money. It's mm-hmm. like, I need the money. <laughs> right. You got studio rent to pay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is a, I'm working and uh, we don't have the headroom anymore. So I need to get paid. All right. I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Rob Schnaff here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. As usual, we're going to do a sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio Technica. We've taken down the ad for the artist series rebates, although that is still going on. So make sure and, you know, check into that if you are buying an artist series mic and you want to get a rebate. But I do want to talk about, uh, there's a new ad we have up on the website. It's for the ATM350A. And I saw this at AES and it's super cool. Basically, it's a it's a cardioid condenser instrument mic and it uh, has all these cool mounts to it. They've got a drum mount for it. They've got a magnetic piano mount for it. The drum mounting system allows you to just leave the mount on and then disengage the mic from the drums. So if you're packing the drums away in their cases, or let's say you're in a house of worship type situation and the drums are always up, but you don't want to leave the mics up, uh, you can take the mics off and leave the clips on. And then when you go to set up again, you just pop them back in the clip. Pretty cool. So uh, make sure and check that out. It's the, uh, once again, it's the ATM 350A. And it's it's a little gooseneck condenser mic thing, very uh, low profile. So if you're interested in that, of course, head on over to audio-technica.com and look up the 350A, the AT350A. And uh, yeah, have a look for yourself. Check it out. Well, that's it. Let's get back into it with Mr. Rob Schnaff here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Well, I, I'll just ask you outright. I mean, are you, do you feel like you're making a decent living doing this or is it still a struggle? I am creatively extremely happy and uh, financially. It's a Holocaust. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrible. It's not that bad. Um, yeah, it's a living. This leads me to the question, probably the most common, consistent question I always ask on the show, and we kind of touched on it as we were getting up and running here on our conversation, but what's your relationship financially with gear? Do you go into debt for gear? No. Okay. If I can't afford it, I won't buy it, except I bought the Burl Mothership. But other than that, that's it. That's that's the only piece you'll go into debt for. Um, yes, that was the only... I mean, I... I had a rig that worked, but it was spread over like, what, uh, one, two, three different kinds of converters. And um, they all had different latencies. And sometimes, you know, just the way the tracks would lay out, you know, what if you had a stereo track that was going to now come out two different converters? It wouldn't work. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah, just, I don't know. I just got sick of it. So I was just looking for one, I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to be like one tape machine. Mm -hmm. Man, what a, I was really surprised how good, because I had some good converters, but man, a Burl is just, sounds great. That's a different flavor altogether. And I'm not yeah, like I mean, a it, wax poetic about converters, but I have heard those and I, and I was like, wow, pff, damn. Yeah. And I, I just, I was like, I had mixed something on my old rig and then did a recall and it came out the burl and it was like, whoa, it wasn't like a close your eyes and, you know, it wasn't one of those close your eyes and listen hard, mm, which, uh, mm. it was like, whoa, that, that one, that, what's that? <laughs> That's good. You've obviously collected some gear over time. I did see your interview with Warren Hewitt on YouTube and I was like, damn, you guy's got a room full of stuff. Um, well... I've been taking pot shots since the 80s. Yeah. You know, like, ooh, that's cheap. I'm going to buy that one. <laughs> <laughs> so what... I mean, your... now doing it now would be really difficult. Everything's so expensive. It really is. Yeah. But, I, but it's at, just... At the same time, it, do you feel like... I mean, in terms of the gear that's out there, it does feel like there's a lot of lower cost gear that does do the job and gets you from A to B. Um, now obviously it's, I guess it depends on your work style yeah, and how you like work and what you, what you like doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of buying gear now, what is your criteria for buying a piece of gear? Cause you probably own enough to make records and, you know, for the rest of your career. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't really, I, um, I stay away from the word need. Um, I don't really need anything. It's just sometimes you find a hole. Like, ooh, huh. You know, you're working on a record and there's this thing you're trying to do and it, um, there's a piece of gear that does it real easy for you, you know, through turning some knobs. You're like, yeah, like the overstayer stuff, I just love. It's really good. Um, the master and servant and the stereo field effect. Um, one saturation, the other's compression. Really great stuff. And then that's new. And then like the Cappy stuff, if you want that like vintage API sound. Without the vintage API price? 
Because in exactly, the, yeah, yeah, that Cappy stuff is not as expensive as as API stuff, if I recall. No, uh, it, no it's not. Um, it sounds better than the new stuff, the new API stuff. It comes in kits, so you can build it yourself if you want, mm-hmm. um, which is also a whole lot of fun. Sounds really good, hmm. like really good. It's like ah, yeah, that's it. That's that's the sound. Where did you start your recording career? What city? I worked at a studio in D.C. called Bias Recording. Mm-hmm. Before that, I worked in the RCA mailroom in New York. And when you were in D.C., what, what years was did you uh, live there? Uh, I lived there from 81 to 87. Interesting time to come up in the music world in D.C. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of Discord and Go-Go. And, oh, man, also a ton of bluegrass. Really? Oh, man. That was like, yeah, I... Bias was kind of like the bluegrass mecca and also did a lot of go-go along with tons of other stuff. But uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting. And then being in bands in D.C. at that time, yeah, it was a really cool sort of, uh, I learned a lot. Would you say it was, uh, was it the Beck record that really kind of put you on the map? Yeah. Tom and I were bubbling around, you know, with bong load and putting out seven inches before that. But that just kind of blew it up. Um, yes. As my father said to me, you work 10 hard years to become an overnight sensation. <laughs> and once that happened, did did the work just start coming in because everybody wanted a, a, that sound or? Well, no, I mean, th- still that record was an anomaly. I mean, for even that time, there wasn't anything like that. So... There wasn't anything else like that on our discography, and there weren't other records like that, period. But it put you in sort of the, I need to put these guys in our Rolodex column. It's good to be in the Rolodex. I I can't say that we were totally in yet, but we were like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, could you make a, a card for the Rolodex with these guys on it? Yeah. Well, you worked with with uh, Tom for a while. Yeah. At some point, did you guys kind of went your separate ways and just to do something different, or like where does do you do you work together at all now? No. Okay. Um, no, it just uh, you know it's the nature of relationships. They you know they run their course. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we worked very closely for a while, and then it was time to move on. Yeah. Time to check out different ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have kids, um, uh, life just gets more complicated and, um, and you get different interests and that, that's all good. Do you have kids now? Oh yeah. Yes. How many kids do you have? Two. We're in the same boat. Uh, How are you, how old are yours? Uh, 14 and 17. You're a little ahead of me. What, uh, how old are your kids? Eight years and 10 years. Oh, cool. Yeah. You have girls or boys? Have the set. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I Um, got to ask you as as a parent, I mean, the work-life balance thing, how do you make that work for you? It's a struggle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, whew, there were times where it was just very difficult, especially when I had to travel more. I hated it. Like there was a period of time I making records in England and it would just be like, oh, I don't want to go. Yeah. 
Something um, you should be excited for, but you're just, you miss the kids. You miss the kids. And then also you miss the kids, but you have kids and ultimately your wife needs a break and you're not there to do it. And all you could, there's nothing you can do. And you get the phone call like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> when are you coming home? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing you could do, you know? And it's like, I totally understand. Yeah. So I eventually, you know, I just made it, I was like, I'm not leaving town anymore. I can't do it. Yeah. Are you still married? Yeah. Good for you. Yep. Made How it, about you? Made it, made it, oh yeah, me too. Um, yeah. Almost, almost lost it. Almost. But yeah, I kept it together. We kept it together. It, it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a different game. I envy the folks that are without kids and doing audio because, you know, th those struggles are, they don't know those struggles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, you got it. That was fun. You probably need my email address to send me this audio, don't you? Yes. Just matt at workingclassaudio.com. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Just send me, you know, mono wave file and I'll put this together and get the show out next Monday. Uh, and I was going to put shimmer all over my my end, that reverb. Yeah. Is that cool? Uh, no. <laughs> it's like an octave thing. You know, it'd be really, it's really cool. I, wouldn't that be interesting if you're really dry and I'm really reverb? <laughs> <laughs> I've often toyed around with the idea of, of doing my monologue and just fucking with people like... <laughs> Hey, have you guys tried this or that? Yeah. I, I, there were times where we would do that with talkback. <laughs> Just put, you know, uh, two octaves down on the... <laughs> and then just move it around. You run it through the, the harmonizer, and it would drive people insane. Like, <laughs> you have to stop. <laughs> or you put lots of distortion on it. <laughs> It really sucks because there's nothing worse than having headphones on and trying to play or do anything. <laughs> and then the talk back is like. <laughs> Distortion with the low pitch harmonizer thing yeah. on there. You know, that's just. You feel very alone and weird out there. <laughs> <laughs> that if you're doing shit like that, that tells me that you have a great relationship with the artist. <laughs> Just go out there and play your little song. Yeah. Hey, Neil, get out there and play that guitar part. I'll talk to you. Oh, that's some funny shit. Oh, yeah. Well, all right then, on that note. All right, so we're just going to pipe this through the Leslie, and off it'll go. Yeah, give me a little Booker T action on there. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Thanks, Rob. Right on. Thanks. Bye. -bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Rob Schnaff here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Rob on. I always get 
so much out of these interviews, and uh, this was no exception. So hope you hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But we are out of time, so we want to say thanks. Of course, thank you to Rob Schnaff for being on the show. I want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams for their help on the show. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And thank you sincerely for listening and continue to do so. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.